Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear, you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. There was some nice footage from Embari at about 1,400 metres down, so 4,500 feet off the California coast, and they saw a squid brooding her eggs. And it's unusual for squid to brood eggs. They tend to either release them as as floating mats or to to plant them somewhere. But there are some examples. And interestingly, all the examples of squid brooding their eggs are uh, deep sea. So it's obviously a a viable strategy when you're reproducing in the deep sea. So the species was Bathytuthis berii, and uh, there's some nice papers on it. So I'll put those in the show notes. Do you have any more newsy stories? Or the only one I saw, which was interesting, was uh, discovering why deep-sea corals glow in the dark. Well, yeah, it's a b- bunch of scientists from Tel Aviv University are saying it's uh, a lot of these corals give off fluorescence. So they, they use the downwelling light to excite pigments and give off these beautiful displays. And no one was really quite sure what they were for, but they reckon it's to attract in plankton, signaling their prey. And they did some uh, some quite cool lab experiments, didn't they? There's like colour and pattern preferences to little prey invertebrates really weird i'm quite enjoying the sort of paleo stuff i'm quite enjoying the like looking back in earth's history uh so the deep atlantic was once as warm as the mediterranean it was 20 degrees 50 million years ago and so ancient temperatures were reconstructed from the stable isotope ratios of critter shells in the deep sea muds so coccolithophores things like that you get a nice three meter sample of deep sea mud and it's essentially a going back in time basically so that's going to help us understand elevated co2 and the the impact on our planet but uh, yeah, 20 degrees, like in all of the Atlantic. That's mad, isn't it? So there was a new brine pool discovered in the Red yes. Sea, Gulf of Aquaba, the small inlet to the north of the, of the Red Sea. The main pool is huge. I thought this was a typo at first, but 10 square kilometers, and then with three minor pools around it. Well, they're, they're quite excited because they preserve um, the sediment really well, because of course they're, yes. they're pretty abiotic. So they reckon there's... 1200 years of geological history beautifully preserved at the bottom of it in its sediments yeah very very cool did you hear about the java sea off indonesia glowing back in 2019 glowing the milky sea this one was uh was java off indonesia it was more than a hundred thousand kilometers squared of the ocean was just glowing nice and the satellite observations were published last year and following the publication the crew of the yacht ganesha got in touch to say they were there and they Ooh. had photos like from the surface and they sort of did a little bit of citizen science and tried to sort of figure it out so it was a really nice like example of ground truthing of satellite data really wondrous things still being discovered anyway so all all this talk of fluorescence and bioluminescence and going from a whole episode on mesopelagic fish and other bioluminescent oddities we should conclude this don't you think with a trilogy you might say we need to follow up with someone who knows about the eyes themselves uh, so we should phone someone up who knows about that and who are we going to chat to i want to chat to justin marshall Right, so in the last few episodes, we've learned quite a lot about things like the mesopelagic or the deep pelagic, and then we were talking about bioluminescence. But the final piece of the puzzle is vision in the deep sea. Today, we have Professor Justin Marshall, who I was going to say from University of Queensland, but I think you're now retired. So, Justin, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Oh, yeah, good, Alan. Thanks. And I'm sort of retired, but um, believe it or not, I'm at a conference. Um, you can still say I'm at the University of Queensland. Oh yeah, still happily studying fish and wondering why they have eyes. Excellent. 
So what is unusual about deep sea fish eyes, the adaptations and so on? Uh, well, I mean, the answer to that is actually not much. They're, they're pretty much um, like fish eyes from the surface. They're pretty much like our eyes. Now, our eyes are called simple eyes because they have you know the cornea, curvy bit you see at the front of our eyes, and that um, focuses the light onto the lens that focuses the light onto the retina and makes our image nice and sharp. In the sea, the cornea doesn't do anything because the cornea is sort of the same refractive index as water. So fishes' lenses are a bit different. But, you know, whether it's a, a fish on the surface or a fish in the deep sea, they have these spherical round lenses uh, and they have a retina at the back. So really the answer to the question is not that much until you start thinking about it. Uh, and then there are things in the deep sea that you need to do that you don't need to do on the surface. To cut a long story short, there's quite a few eyes that have become more simple. And then there's weird eyes that sort of have divided into two and other eyes that have become more complicated. So they go in both yeah. directions. So the, the, the four-eyed fish, for example, is that something which is very specific deep sea or has that evolved in any other animal? No, that, that's very deep sea-ish. Um, and there's a whole bunch of those. And, and the reason for that is that if you think about these fish in the mesopelagic, and of course, as we all know, as soon as you get below a thousand meters in the ocean, there's no light left from the surface. So it's all bioluminescence. But when you're in that mesopelagic realm, um, let's say 200 meters, there is light from the surface. And then as you sort of think about looking out to the side and looking down, it gets darker and darker. But there's still stuff there. There's still the bioluminescence. And lots of the deep sea fish at that level will have eyes that point upwards. So there's a famous fish called Apistoproxus. Its main eye looks upwards, but then it has this, or its relatives have this series of adaptations that then allow the fish to look downwards too. Uh, it's almost as if it sort of forgot about that bit. So it designed most of its eye to look upwards, and then it went, oh, hang on, I do need to see stuff down too, because that might be a predator coming towards me. They sometimes add what looks like a complete eye that's looking downwards. It's a little called a diverticulum. And some of them have their own little lens and their own little retina. Um, and others have these sort of lens pad things that reflect or refract light into the eye, uh, allowing the fish to have this sort of vision downwards as well, while focusing on the light from above. So it kind of covers all angles, if you like. So the thing that I was interested in, the vertical component to that, of course, the sort of downwelling light is one thing, but let's say you're completely beyond that. You're at 5,000 metres on the middle of an abyssal plain. Yeah. Something flashes. How far away are things seeing that? I mean, you know, because we keep talking about bioluminescence is used for communication and then everyone runs off a list of potential things that could be communicating, but how far is it emitting that, do you think? Oh, it's a good question. One of the things that a lot of people don't realise is that vision in the ocean is limited by water. Um, so no, no animal in the ocean is going to see like we do, you know, 100, 200, 300 metres away, a kilometre away. You know, we can still spot things miles away because air doesn't attenuate light very much or not as much as water. Whereas water, even if it's very pure, um, will cut light down. And then as soon as you start adding stuff to it, like you know particles or um, sediment or dissolved organic matter, then it um, attenuates very quickly. So most action in the ocean, whether you're in the deep sea or in the surface, is over just a few metres. Is it as short as that, really? Yeah, just I mean, it's a surprise. That, you know, a lot of animals that live in the surface waters, especially, as I said, when you've got this organic matter in there, uh, their whole life yeah. is conducted within you know, possibly the space of the room which you're sitting in. In the deep sea, the water does tend to be quite clear. Um, so it can be 100 metres, that sort of thing. But that's a long way away for a little fish. And it's quite yeah. difficult to judge distance in the, in the sea also, especially in the deep. You now you see a flash. Now, was that a big flash a long way away? Or was that a little yeah. flash very close? You know, imagine sitting in a dark room and someone has a torch and if they flash it and you go, oh, it was over there, wasn't it? But it's gone out now. And then it flashes somewhere else in the room and 
That's what happens in the deep sea. These animals have to cope with these flashes from unknown distance and decide what to do. I want to talk about some of the stuff that's come out of your lab particularly. In 2017, you discovered a new type of eye cell in deep sea fish, this rod-like cone specialised for dimly lit environments. Can you tell us about that? No, I think not anyone can remember their biology back at school. You remember that the eye has these two types of photoreceptors, the rods and the cones. And in general, the, the rods are for dim light vision. The cones allow animals in general to have colour vision. So, you know, we've got three cones. We've got our red, green and blue. Hence, our whole world is RGB. In the deep sea, not that long ago, people thought, oh, all of these fish are just going to have rods, aren't they? Because, you know, rods see in the dim light and it's dim in the deep sea. So they're just going to have rods. And that's actually true for a lot of deep sea fish. Um, they do just have rods. But then, you know, we've found over the years that several of them have cones. And then you have to worry about the distinction between you know, what is a cone and what is a rod. You know, cones were labelled as cones because they're sort of cone-shaped. And rods are labelled as rods because they're, you guessed it, rod-shaped. Um, but the distinction there is is breaking down. Um, a number of animals, including things like snakes, uh, have sort of re-evolved colour vision but using rods, not cones, and then other animals use cones for dim light vision. So it's become a bit of a, a mix and match situation. What we're finding increasingly in the deep sea is it's, it's not as simple as we thought it was. Yeah. So what about fluorescence? Is that something you've worked on? It is. I've got a particular thing about fluorescence because you know, one of the things that we do as humans is we like flashy stuff and we like things that glow in the dark. So we wave UV lights around and we see things that fluoresce. You know, go to any nightclub and you've got people wearing fluorescent tattoos. All sorts of things fluoresce. You know, we actually use it in everyday lives. And then as soon as you see an animal that fluoresces, you think, oh, that must be relevant to the animal. It's trying to stick out. Except you need the light to excite it to fluoresce. And in the deep sea, there isn't much. You know, in the mesopelagic, when you're in the sort of blue zone, it turns out that blue is quite a good fluorescence exciter. And yeah, in that kind of zone, it's possible that the blue light that's remaining excites fluorescent coral. And, you know, I've seen this myself diving. You, you go to, let's say, even just 20 metres, you're scuba diving. And all scuba divers know that when you're at 20 metres, reds disappear because water filters out red first. So if you've got a red snorkel, it kind of looks muddy green or black. Uh, and you have to come back up to the surface waters to re-see your red snorkel. But then you see, oh, hang on, that's an orange coral I've just seen. And that's a coral that is using the blue light to fluoresce. So there's a chemical process within the coral, within one of its pigments, that pulls in the blue light, it pulls in the blue photons, and then the chemical re-emits photons in the red or the orange. And it's always in that direction. It's always from shorter wavelengths, yeah. the blues and the greens, to the oranges and the reds and stuff. And yeah, a number of corals, animals do this. Yeah. Uh, but no, there's, there's stuff out there that just fluoresces. I mean, your teeth fluoresce. Is that relevant? Probably not. And yeah, so that's the thing. Don't get too excited about things that glow in the dark because they may not glow in their natural habitat. Scientific stories. There are. I mean, your career has been pretty damn impressive for all sorts of reasons. But the two, the next two, I'm going to pick out is the mantis shrimp story. Oh, yeah. Right, the mantis shrimp can see in twelve color channels. Mm -hmm. I think that is phenomenal, and how that sort of branched out into all sorts of different applications. I think possibly even the Blu-ray DVD. Yeah. Another one that sticks out is the color-changing cephalopods are actually colorblind. Yeah. I think those two are, are stories which will go down in the, the great things about marine science. To use a, a nerdy science joke here, they are at two ends of the spectrum. Well, hey. One's got 12 visual channels and the cephalopods only have one. And yeah, they're pretty amazing in both respects. Mantis shrimps, they do have these, the ones that live at the surface have these 12 spectral sensitivities. As I mentioned already, you know, we've got red, green and blue, RGB. That's perfectly adequate for seeing most colours on Earth. 
Uh, birds extend that to four, and that allows them to see into the deeper into the UV, the ultraviolet. And, you know, you can show theoretically that four really is pretty much what you need. So stomatopods, why do they need 12? Well, they seem to encode colour differently. But then, yeah, as you say, the, the other end of the spectrum, the, the cephalopods that have this superb camouflage ability, completely colourblind. So how do they do it? And this includes things like you know, giant squid, which we could argue are, are pretty deep sea or at least mesopelagic, and other cephalopods that live in the deep. They have this single visual pigment. But then the cephalopods that live on the surface have a single visual pigment, despite the fact that they have available to them the full spectrum of light, and despite the fact that they put on body colours and shades and texture, that allows them to disappear instantly. So how do they do that? Now, I, I played a mean trick on cuttlefish in Plymouth once. We decided to put cuttlefish on aquarium gravel. So we bought yeah. bright yellow gravel and we bought bright blue gravel. And we took the cuttlefish out of their natural murky green habitat and put them on bright yellow gravel. First thing, they don't go bright yellow. So they're not just matching a single color. They don't go bright blue. But what do they do? And if you actually mix bright blue and bright yellow gravel, and take a photograph with a black and white camera. Black and white camera only has a single spectral channel. You can't tell the difference between blue and yellow anymore. And this is exactly what happens to the cuttlefish. So you put them on bright yellow and blue gravel, and they put on a, a body shade, which is just even all over it. They don't try and match the texture. Huh. So what that tells us is that they're not, they're not seeing the color contrast that we can. They believe they're on an even gray shade. So we fool them into doing the wrong thing with their body colors. Now, it still leaves the question of how the octopus, I mean, yeah, goodness gracious, how do they do that? Um, and it's basically through evolution. So octopus and cuttlefish are superb at matching the intensity, the overall pattern that's provided by the intensity, and to some extent, the texture, so they can raise their body skin to look like seaweed and stuff. And they do those three things, but they don't do color. And all they have to do is recognize that the bottom of the ocean is usually kind of green and brown. You know, it's not usually bright blue and bright yellow. So all they have to do is put on a sort of greeny, browny background color, and they don't need to worry about not seeing it because they disappear. Ah, I always thought they were actually mimicking it. They were, they're just going for what they think it should be. They just kind of do it because that's what evolution tells them the ocean yeah. floor looks like. So are deep sea animals doing anything different in the brains? Are their brains evolved in any particular way to, to process this type of information? So, you know, what's going on in the brain department? I mean, good question. And the brains are not that different. They're, again, similar to those of surface living fish. They don't have the bits that need to process colour, you know, unless you're a weird deep sea fish that could process colour. Cut back to brains, they're not that dissimilar. They can become simplified for certain areas that don't need as much light as the surface dwellers. Um, but they have all the different, you know, the metanencephalon, diencephalon, to use the fancy terms. The eyes go to the same sort of area of the brain to allow the brain to interpret images. But I'm kind of arm-waving, as you can tell. Really, the real answer is, although there's overall similarities, we just don't know. You once told me that you lived underwater for quite some time in the Aquarius yeah. laboratory. Um, this thing doesn't exist anymore, the, but the Aquarius habitat was basically an underwater caravan uh, on the Florida Keys. And you know, lucky marine biologists could go and spend 10 days underwater. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be in the water for 10 days. Uh, you can duck up into this caravan, which was held at about 25 metres. Uh, so you can duck up into, you know, into dry-ish air um, and dry off-ish. Now, humans are not adapted to being that damp that often. And you do start growing fungus. It's not pleasant. Then you need to just describe it once as 
is like having all over body trench foot. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> Athletes, everything. Yeah, it, and when I came up, I got what's called a skin bend, which meant that a lot of the skin of my hands and feet just fell off all in one go. So my, I had this sort of foot pad, which just peeled off, which was very unpleasant. But I dried it out and kept it in my wallet for a bit, but I gave it to a girlfriend. She was very happy with my, my, with my foot parchment thing. It was fantastic. I mean, I definitely felt better when I was out in the water. And, you know, the good thing about the habitat was that you could spend eight hours a day out in the water and you just start thinking like a fish. But it was a great experience, great privilege to you know, live amongst the fishies and the other animals for um, that amount of time. So, yeah, it was fantastic, apart from the smell. That's been fascinating, Justin. Thank you very much for your time and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Alan and Tom. It's been great to talk to you about you know, things that I love. Hi, I'm Claudia. I'm a university student from Sydney, and I wanted to thank you for your wonderful podcast and ask you a question about snailfish. How did they get their name? I know they have a sucker on the underside of their bodies, but what is it used for? And is it the only reason for their name? Thank you. They're a super successful family. Snailfish, <laughs> the, the Leparidae, are found from like the intertidal, you can find them in rock pools, to being the sort of deepest living fish, at least that we currently know about. They have adapted their pelvic fins into a little sucking disc that lets them hold on to smooth rocks and to the fronds of kelp and seaweed. And when they're holding on there, they tend to curl their little body around and they look like a little snail. And that is where the snailfish name comes from. Hello, this is explorer oceanographer Don Walsh. And the subject for today's program is windows in the sea. When using manned or unmanned submersibles, you need to be able to see outside. But these windows or viewports are also pressure boundaries where the observer inside is at atmospheric pressure and outside it's at higher pressures that vary with depth in the sea. It's an engineering challenge. The viewport material needs to be strong, so the trick is to have something that's also transparent. For over two centuries, glass was the logical choice. In fact, the only choice. From an engineering point of view, glass is very strong, but there are serious problems with it. It is unpredictable. This is mainly due to the fact that it loses strength when it is notched and then can fail without warning. I can give you an example, and that is cutting a piece of glass for a picture frame. You make a scratch across the piece of glass, and then you just tap the glass very slightly, and it breaks along that scratch line. And that's called a stress concentrator. Well, it's not very good for a uh, window in the sea if somebody happens to scratch it in some way. Now you've got a stress concentrator, and it could fail without warning. But it was all we had until the 1920s. And that was when another stronger material was developed. It was called fused quartz, a transparent material made from very pure silica. By the late 1920s, General Electric was able to produce larger quartz glass viewports. They were difficult to fabricate, but were much, much stronger than conventional glass. But fused quartz had some of the same limitations, namely the problem of stress concentrations. And again, you could get uh, sudden failures. In short, it was tricky. But at Bermuda in the early 1930s, Dr. William Beebe planned deep diving operations with his bathysphere. For his windows, he used three-inch thick fused quartz disc. Nevertheless, with these windows, he bravely got to 3,028 feet in 1935. Dr. Beebe was indeed the first hydronaut. The last use of quartz glass in a submersible was by Beebe's partner, Otis Barton. In 1949, he dove his new design to 4,500 feet. However, by then, fused quartz had been eclipsed by a newer and safer material called plexiglass. 
It was invented in 1933 in Germany. It's not a glass. It's a plastic material. That means that it can flow under pressure, not like water, but very slowly adjust to pressure changes and that way avoid any stress concentrations. And it can also resist surficial damage. You could actually take a knife or sandpaper and scratch it without any loss of strength. In the late 1930s, plexiglass really made it possible for inventor Auguste Picard to begin design and construction of bathyscaphe manned submersibles, which had unlimited depth capabilities. In 1960, the two seven-inch thick acrylic viewports on the bathyscaphe Trieste worked perfectly on a dive to a depth of nearly seven miles. There, the outside pressure was an astounding eight tons per square inch. By the 1970s, hundreds of manned and unmanned submersibles had been put into service worldwide, all used plastic viewports. While acrylic viewports were the beginning, it did not take long for entire submersible hulls to be constructed of massive acrylics, where the hull is essentially one big window. We humorously call this experience being inside a people bowl. That is, you're in the bowl and the fish are looking at you from the outside. So until next time, think deep and thanks for listening. And that concludes this pressurized version of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to go into some more detail, you can find the full episode in the feed. Just match the episode numbers. We'll deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone.